0: Looking radiant.
1: <laughs>
0: wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, Alex, welcome. We, uh, we spent the last, um five days, some of us for, for me, uh, celebrating the Buddha's awakening and studying a text called the, uh, Meditative Concentration in the Treasury of, uh, of Radiance or Bright Light. And, um, but I'm going to talk about something different tonight. Uh, Apparently at some point it seems uh to me a good idea to say yes to giving a dharma talk the night after a after a sesshin. <laughs> uh, and uh my title is The Taste of Karma Colon Zazen as Formless Repentance. Um, I was inspired by Douglas uh in two ways the last time he gave a talk. He said that he uh liked giving a dharma talk. Um, as an opportunity to study something that he's that he was interested in, um, and the other way that he inspired this talk is that I noticed that Douglas talks rather a lot about karmic conditioning and karma in other ways, or at least he, he uses those terms, and um, you know I, I realized, wow, well, I'm I'm not entirely sure what he means by those terms and it's clear that they're central to him, so I had some conversations with him and got some reading recommendations, which I've started to scratch the surface of and um, it certainly wasn't hard to hard to find enough material uh, to talk about, uh, and that sort of bookmarked a lot bookmarked a lot of things that I want to come back to so this title, "The Taste of Karma." comes from uh, a series of dharma talks by Katagiri Roshi, uh from uh, uh that, that place in uh, in in um I forget if it's not in Wisconsin, it's across the border in that other state. Anyway, Hokyoji. Uh I think he gave those uh these Dharma talks there. And um it's a series of talks on karma. He talks about being a child and asking this very impressive then priest who used to come to uh, their house, what karma was. And um, the priest said, karma isn't something that you can understand. And then Katagiri says, he said, you have to believe it. And I was feeling kind of disappointed. And the next thing he said was, Katagiri corrects himself. I don't know if he's like, you know, changing the translation, but he says, actually, he said, uh, it's something that you have to taste. You have to taste karma. You have to get the taste of it. And he says that tasting karma is the only way to study it. And eventually, Katagiri is going to get around to saying the way to taste karma is in zazen, is in the, the samadhi, or the mind of zazen. Karma, he says, is one of the imponderable, unfathomable mysteries, along with samadhi and <clears throat> the will of the world and other imponderable things like that. And it's said that if we try to figure out karma, <laughs> it will only make us crazy, or will make us more crazy than we already are. Katagiri Roshi talks a lot about how mysterious karma is. He says karma is scary, and maybe it is something to be scared of. Karma is destiny, doom, irrevocable, inescapable. Karma is ignorance, he says. But he also says some amazing and radiant things about karma. It's true that karma is ignorance, grasping, and craving, he says, but it's also true that karma is Life itself, karma is the source of existence. It's life force energy. He says karma is vitality. Karma, he says, something you can depend on. It's a friend. It's always with you. So that's something about the taste of karma. The title. Eventually, I will get to Zazen as formless repentance, but first. Let's talk about what karma, this word, even is, what it refers to. So karma is a Sanskrit word. It just means action, doing of any kind, anything that somebody does. But already in Indian thinking and teaching before Siddhartha Gautama came along, there was this idea that action, karma, is a big human problem. Because whenever you do an action, Your action sticks to you. It sticks to you as the doer of that deed. It clings to you. And it binds you to the world of suffering and grief and delusion. When Buddha talked about karma though, he made it clear that his definition of karma was limited to things that we do intentionally. Actions that we do on purpose. There are three ways that we do these intentional um, actions. You just chanted that in in the repentance verse. Through body, through speech, and through mind. Whatever we do by means of physical action, by means of language or other communication, by means of thinking. One of the ancient um, Pali records of Buddha's teaching it's called the Dasadhamma, the ten dharmas or ten reflections, ten remembrances. Reflection number one is I have become castless. You know, and this is in a world where that is a, an utterly, radically, you know, anti-conventional society, overturning thing to say, to say I'm not a Brahmin at the top, I'm not an untouchable at the bottom, I'm a person of no rank. Reflection number two is, my life is dependent on others. That is, in order to live, I need other people. And in order to live a good life, I need other people to help me, to teach me, to accompany me, to nurture me, and also to challenge me. And then jumping ahead to reflection number seven, Buddha says this,
1: I am the owner of my
0: actions. I am the heir, the inheritor to my actions. I am born of my actions. I am related through my actions. And I have my actions as my arbitrator, my judge. Whatever I do, for good or for bad, to that I will fall heir. I will fall inheritor.
1: How am I born of my actions? And how do I inherit my actions?
0: One obvious way, I think, is through what we call force of habit, that astonishing ability, of the kind of beings that we are to become different kinds of people through conditioning, by acquiring dispositions through habituation. We call it second nature, but it's not nature. Um, Aristotle. Um, Aristotle wants to say that character is not according to nature, and so he compares human beings to a stone. I think he means this as a joke. Anyway, he says, you can throw a stone up in the air a thousand times, and the thousand and one time that you do it, the stone hasn't learned a damn thing. It will just fall. But a person, a person, if I... You know, if I, for 21 times, make my bed, or for 21 times, smile at someone, or 21 times, cut a corner, or, you know, um, anyway, by time number 22, I probably will have become, you know, that kind of person, a habitual bed maker, or a habitual rager, whatever. Responding to life in that way will have started to feel like part of my nature, part of who I am And I'll be on the way to having the kind of life that such a person might expect to have. So this is already getting us deep into the idea of karmic conditioning. And also into the more challenging and complex idea of karmic retribution. Karma as comeuppance or payback. The idea of what goes around comes around. That's the sense of the word karma Has passed into American English in the 20th century, and now in this century, everybody knows it, everybody uses it. I'd say there's nothing, there's nothing particularly specifically Buddhist about the idea of what goes around comes around. Most human cultures seem to have some version of this idea about life. Socrates, teaching around the same time as Buddha, said that all wrong this is such a radical teaching he said that all wrongdoing is based in ignorance and delusion he says no one ever does harm intentionally such an amazing point claim. and here's his argument he says no one ever harms another person on purpose His, his proof is if i harm other people i make them worse and then i have to live in a world with the same people that i've made worse and the people in that world that I've made worse are gonna to act toward me in ways that will make my own life worse. So if there is such a thing as a natural tendency for wrong deeds to come back, to visit the wrongdoer, then both Socrates and Buddha think that this natural come comeuppance mechanism thing operates only because we are all interdependent, all in it together, all in the same boat. A more recent um, pair of philosophers have a teaching on karma that even more closely resembles what we taught. This is John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Instant Karma. It goes like this. I was really surprised to go back and look at these words. Instant karma's gonna get you, gonna knock you right on the head. You better get yourself together. Pretty soon you're gonna be dead. What in the world are you thinking of? laughing in the face of love. What on earth are you trying to do? It's up to you. Yeah, you. Instant karma's gonna get you, gonna look you right in the face. Better get yourself together, darling, join the human race. How in the world are you gonna see laughing at fools like me? Who on earth do you think you are, a superstar? Well, right you are well we all shine on like the moon and the stars and the sun well we all shine on everywhere so john and yoko are bringing some bodhisattva dharma realness about karma right the song says that instant karma is going to get you it's going to get you by looking right at you showing yourself in the showing you yourself in the mirror and the reason karma is going to get you or is already getting you right now is because, or I guess it's a series of reasons. One, you've forgotten that life is limited by mortality. Two, you don't know that love is the thing that matters. Three, you think you stand apart from other beings. Four, you really need to start taking foolish wisdom very seriously. <laughs> and finally, Five, you think you're some kind of superstar and the reason why reason five is a big problem is because you're right you are a star you are a magnificent luminous radiant, brilliant, splendid star <laughs> but just not quite in the way you think because we're, <laughs> we're all planetary bodies together we all shine on everyone And we keep on shining on, jewels in Indra's net, illuminating all other beings and bathing in the awesome brightness that is not more in Buddhas and is not less in ordinary beings, according to the text that we were studying. So this is a song of absorption in the mysterious womb matrix that we all shine on. That's the wow. So, karma. Before I started looking into um, some early Buddhist teaching about karma, I, I have to say I was a little worried that I was going to find things there that I didn't like and, and wouldn't want to accept. You know, and maybe I, I would have to start making, you know, mental, <laughs> you know, cognitive dissonance allowances and say, okay, this is, that's early Buddhism, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I think you know what I mean so i can divide that into into three headers first you know the thought that okay does karma mean that there's that there's something like a santa claus sky god or some kind of cosmic you know algorithm that is that is individually specifically assigning rewards and punishments um i'm i'm convinced that that no that's that's not what's meant by by karma that's that's not how it works it's it can be inexorable in the sense that that causes have effects, but that doesn't mean that that any agent either causes you know that that effect to be the thing that comes from that cause, or that it's that it's known that, or that it's known what effect is going to be produced in the world by a given cause. And then the second thing that that kind of worried me was this this reincarnation thing. Um, and I, I really didn't know much about early Buddhist teaching on reincarnation. I've learned, I've learned to say rebirth instead of reincarnation because I was thinking of the old model of, you know, an inherent, uh, an, an eternal soul and a perishing body, you know, where the, where the, the soul hops from body to body like a rat, you know, hopping from a ship to a to a ship or like somebody changing clothes. And that is the that is an older opinion. I mean, that's that's an opinion held in um, in a lot of you know Indian schools of of thought and a lot of other places in the world, including, for example, a lot of Greek thinkers. Uh, But that's that's not what Buddha teaches in the in the earliest records that we have. Does the self live on after the death of the individual? Somebody asked Buddha, and his answer was silence. And later, Ananda asked him, his disciple who, who memorized his words as best he could, asked him, what was up with that? And he said, well, Ananda, if I say no, um, that's nihilism, and that's incorrect. If I say yes, that's eternalism, and that's also incorrect. So, you know, if karma comes back, uh, if it comes back around, if what goes around comes back around, um, does it come back to the same person? <laughs> It's wrong to say yes, and it's wrong to say no. There's so much complex teaching about what it is that persists in the world um the yogacara talks about the storehouse consciousness and it talks about seeds um, being being stored in this storehouse through karmic action, and those seeds bear the fragrance the you know the 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 smelly or or delightful fragrance of whatever deeds they're attached to. Okay, but the third and for me potentially most disturbing thing that I, I didn't want karma, Buddhist karma to be teaching was, you know, a morality of personal responsibility that sustains an oppressive status quo and blames oppressed people for their own state of oppression. By saying people are oppressed or enslaved or, or otherwise limited in life uh, because it's their own fault because they did something wrong to deserve that. And um, again, I'm I'm happy to learn that you know, Buddha didn't teach that everything that happens happens according to to karma. The teaching of collective karma is not, <laughs> so far as I can tell, it's not it's not an innovation of Buddhist um, of Buddhist modernism. Right? Um, interdependence, <laughs> uh, you know, the 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 interpermeation and interpenetration of all beings is like original for the teaching. It's not, it's not a modernist innovation. Um, so, and as the chant that we chanted says and jorakugajo, with Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha as the conditions. In other words, if if karma plants seeds and those seeds are causes, and the causes are waiting for conditions to be unlocked. If the conditions are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the karmic result this chant says is. Permanence, joy, true self, and wholeness. (laughs) You know, we speak of the three marks of existence being impermanence, suffering, and no self. Those three marks of existence are also empty, right? In other words, uh, not no self and not self. You know, not suffering and not the extinction.
1: So, on to
0: some words about Zazen as formless repentance. This was a new phrase and a new idea to me, and I'm excited about it. So, the mind of Zazen is the mind of living the precepts, the mind of being upright, as Rev Anderson says in and his book with that title, being upright. So, formal repentance is a ceremony of or confession, like the Bodhisattva Remembrance Ceremony that we now do at the Full Moon. Um, Lots of cultures um, um, through the history of the species have had various um, repentance ceremonies. Um, There was, for example, apparently a a Hittite Repentance Ceremony where the king, the sovereign, maybe it was the queen sometimes, took on all the wrongs of all the people, taking responsibility. And the end of the prayer is, I did that, I am the one. Really interesting. And that's why in Latin, the word that ought to mean being, doesn't mean being, it means guilty. and It just comes from that idea that if I did that thing, I've become the one who did that thing. And that becomes who I am. We the ceremony and when we chant the repentance verse at the beginning of a service, as we did tonight, we are formally expressing and enacting the mind of zazen, which is formless repentance. Here are some things that Shohaku Okumura says about repentance and zazen in Living by Vow. This is the section on the repentance verse. I'll summarize some. So he says, Even though we've received the precepts, we often forget them and lose our directions, lose our direction as bodhisattvas. So that's one reason to to have this practice of repentance. But then he says there's another deeper meaning of repentance. We live in the reality of our life whether or not we observe the precepts, and nobody can escape from this reality. Even though we are deluded, we live in reality as deluded human beings. So there's ultimately no separation between reality and delusion. Or you could say, reality includes delusion. Even though we live in the reality that is, we live in the reality that's beyond discrimination, we have to discriminate all the time in our day-to-day lives. We have to decide what is good. Bad. We're all doing that right now, sitting here, sitting, you know, sitting, talking, listening, sitting upright, all those things involve discriminating and involve living in the in the the world that includes delusion. Without discrimination, we can do nothing. Even as we practice the Buddha's teaching, we have to make choices. It's an unavoidable reality of our concrete lives. And then he says, Zazen is the only exception. When we sit in this posture and open the hand of thought, we are truly free from discrimination. Footnote, of course, he doesn't mean that delusion stops when that happens. Whenever thoughts come up, we just let them go. In our daily activities, we have to make our choices based on discrimination, even though we practice the reality that's beyond discrimination. So he says, for example, right now I'm thinking, how can I express the Buddha's teaching in the most understandable way in English? And that intention involves discrimination, even though he's trying to manifest the reality beyond discrimination. But here's the thing that I I put in bold in, in this text, because it's amazing to me. He says, repentance means that although I think this is the best thing to do in this situation, I recognize that it might be a mistake. It might even be harmful to others and to me. I don't know. I don't know. And so repentance is part of that. It's part of, part of it is acknowledging. I don't know. I think anyone in, in, in the caring professions, including parenting, is aware of that. So I've been teaching for more than 25 years. And- Sometimes students come back and say, you know, that thing that you said to me, that really stuck with me. You know, it's, it's always a good thing, but I know right, that there are things that I've said unintentionally right, that have stuck with students in a bad way. That happens. That, that's one of the things that happens in language. And that is part of my
1: um, intention-twisted comment. has has to do with intention, and it has to do with What's beyond intention?
0: So, in one of the Mahayana texts, the Threefold Lotus Sutra, it says, the whole ocean of obstructions from past karma arises from illusory imagination. If you want to repent for these actions, sit upright and contemplate the true nature of things. All faults are like frost and dew which evaporate in the dawn of a wisdom's sun. Thus wholeheartedly repent of the dualistic experience of the six senses where subject and object seem to be separate. So how does the formless repentance of zazen melt off or burn off karma? I don't think it's by contemplating I don't think that this contemplating the true nature of things is intellectual. Um, In a way, it's none of my business what Zazen is doing. It's like you know, it's like when the plumber is working. It's none of my business what they're doing. It's 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 just fixing what it's fixing. Um, But maybe the formless repentance of Zazen is a gentle lifelong among is among other things a gentle lifelong process of undoing karmic conditioning. Our our habitual karmic reactions, they're second nature, right? I'm conditioned to react in various ways, right? Mm -hmm. These fine-tuned habits that are like reflexes, they feel like nature, you know? So it's like, like, like if if a fine tennis player was trying to learn how to, how to unlearn being a tennis player, they might just stand (laughs) in a tennis court. And have, have someone just hit balls all day until, until they don't react. So they don't react. And all the conditions of my life arise in Zazen. Right? All those thoughts, all those, all those feelings. And of course I can I can keep generating um negative karma of, of thought in, in, in Zazen, but that's not separate, is it? from the mind of repentance, because delusion and ultimate reality are not separate from each other.
1: So, the last thing, and I'm really
0: excited about this. I didn't know this. The repentance verse that we chanted, we chant before service, comes from the Flower Ornament sutra. I didn't know that. It's near the end. Um, We'll get to it eventually. We've been reading the Flower Ornament Sutra once a month for an hour hour and a half, for about three years. Samantabhadra Bodhisattva, Great Activity. I think he's over there riding his elephant. The Bodhisattva of Great Activity is roused to a series of vows for the liberation of all beings. His vow to repent all his ancient twisted karma is not separate from his vow to free all beings from suffering. This is really remarkable to me. I uh, maybe because of you know conditioning from other other traditions, um, I have tended to associate repentance with you know not just not just breastfeeding, which is also a beautiful you know, beautiful gesture, but with I'm so bad and I'm sinking down and I'm sinking into my badness and feeling sadness about my badness. And that's not what Bodhi what uh Samanta Bhadra Bodhisattva is doing, right? <laughs> He's ready to go riding on his elephant, working for um well, working for this, he says, extinguishing all the miseries of bad states. In bringing all beings to happiness, I will act for the welfare of all beings in all lands, everywhere. Um, and he adds this, and when we do the chant at the end, I'm, I, I would, if I may, I'd like to chant this as a, as a lead-in. He adds, as long as the earth exists, as long as all beings exist, as long as actions and afflictions exist, so long will my vow remain. So, when we chant the repentance verse, we are joining Samatabhadra Bodhisattva in that vow.
1: We could close with the 147th Vowels with David's introduction now, but it's sort of it doesn't so much time, but nobody wants to say anything to David about this something I guess we could do that for a little bit. Wow! <laughs> Was, that was really very comprehensive and very comprehensible. And you um, really uh said a lot of great things about karma and very helpful things. Um but I, I just wanted to share that I thought the most helpful one was your metaphor about unlearning how to be a tennis player for Zaza. And uh I'm gonna take that with me. I uh yeah, I, I've I've always thought of karma as my friend, mm. even though it it sometimes you know delivers me things that I don't want. Yeah, yeah. But but it's my friend in doing so. Sometimes my friends you know have to tell me things that I don't want to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And our true friends will, and yeah. our false friends will only tell us things we want to hear. Thank you I thought I had two separate
2: comments, but as i'm thinking like as I'm composing them in my head, I think they're making the same point that so when you talked about being a teacher and you know knowing that <clears throat> with or without your intention, there's things you've said that probably have had a negative impact on your students. It reminded me of the um um something I read from Kate uh, Kate Bornstein, who's uh, uh a really important uh queer and trans activist, um, where she is talking about um I think it's in the foreword of like the newer edition of uh, her her famous book which is called Gender Outlaws, where she says You know, I accept the responsibility that because the language of how we talk about these things changes so quickly that something that I'm saying in this edition of the book is going to harm someone in the future, that the way I'm talking about this now is going to, you know, 15 or 20 years from now be not the way we talk about this and be out of date and, uh and pointy and hard and difficult Mm -hmm. and that she just like accepts that karma that like it's that that she she holds that up as that that's a reality that i face and i'm going to accept that that's i'm still going to do this anyway Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and um and i think
1: that that you know when i when i
2: when we talk about bodhisattva practice that the element of it that's I think the, the first element of like you know wishing to free all beings and wishing to help everybody, including yourself, like that that that's um, a that's an easy one to get behind. Like when you're when you're signing up mm-hmm. for for the the you know team compassion. But mm-hmm. I think the 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 thing that's harder to sign up for that's like in the sub that that's in the, the fine print of that vow is that you're you're inevitably going to harm people in your life, mm-hmm. and that and that you're taking and, and that doesn't mean that anybody is necessarily a bad person, but that that's part of the um, the, the of being a human being that does actions is that mm-hmm. some of them are going to hurt people or hurt yourself, mm-hmm. and choosing to shoulder that responsibility like Kate does and like you do, you know and and continue that vow um, with that in mind uh, I think is is um, exemplifying the courage of mm-hmm. Bhajra.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, so Samantha so, Bhagra keeps on your Yeah, right? And what you describe, right, is um, it isn't just keeping it real, it's staying in the human race, saying, okay, my words that today, you know, maybe, you know, the correct words that make people feel good may in 10 years be the incorrect words that make people feel bad. And the alternative is to become, I think, become rigid and think that I'm right and I'm good and other people are wrong and bad mm-hmm. and there's a, that's, it's a real risk right it's it's a risk for us mm-hmm. you know us well-meaning people to, to think that we're good and we've got it right and they're wrong and they've got it they're bad they've got it wrong <laughs>